Everybody get a handout. There's some in the back. Larry's got a, a bunch of them. There's some up here. Okay, we're going to be... Um, we will finish on time because uh, Kay is going to send the kids in in time to rehearse at the end. So it's a helpful point at which to uh, force me to stop. So you're welcome. Okay, you can thank her. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, um, let me pray for us and then we'll, uh, we'll jump in. Father, we're grateful uh, for your love for us and the great purpose that you have in creation and especially in redemption, uh, and that you would come after us to rescue us, redeem us, uh, to draw us to yourself, and um, not just us, but to make your world new again and to restore that which was broken in the fall, and that this would one day again be uh, the place where your glory dwells in all its fullness in the new heavens and the new earth where we are restored as your image bearers in all uh, the glory that we will possess because we will share in Jesus' glory, as your word says, which is incredible to think about. Lord, we pray that you would bless us this morning as we look at your word and that you would help us to see the way your purposes continue even in the midst of uh, sin and rebellion and what looks like uh, things spiraling out of control. And we thank you for your grace that is greater than our sin, and we pray through Christ. Amen. Okay, a quick review of where we we were last week. We made uh, some big claims about mission being one of, if not the, I could say arguably, the central theme of the Bible. Because we could say, according to Luke 24, that uh, as Jesus tells us, the entire Bible is about Him. But if we ask the question, well, what about Jesus? What do we learn about Jesus And what we learn about is his mission to reveal who God is as well as to uh, come on this rescue mission to seek and save the lost. And so the Bible itself as a whole is about God's mission in the world. Uh, From start to finish, that's what it's about. And so, of course, it's seen most clearly in Jesus and in his mission, but it, it includes the whole of the Bible. And so what Ryan and I are doing this spring is walking through particular portions of the Bible and trying to see this central theme of it. So our big picture objective of what we're trying to do in the Sunday school class is to see that everything that God does is in furthering His mission. That's everything that He does. It's about furthering His mission. And then secondly, this is where it gets practical for us, Uh, We want to see our lives as individuals, but also our corporate life as a church uh, as being wrapped up in that mission as well, so that we could say every single part of our life is about participating in God's mission as well. And so we said last week that mission, uh, oftentimes when we think about it, we think of it as sort of this add-on activity or one, uh, one slice of what the church is about or what the Christian life is about. But what, what we hope to, uh, to talk some about this spring is to see that mission is not something that's an add-on, but it's actually at the core, at the essence of who the church is. So it becomes almost less something that, I mean, I shouldn't say less. It's not merely something that we do, but it's the kind of people that we are, okay? So that, that's what we're, what we're looking at. Here's a quote from Chris Wright. He says this, Fundamentally, our mission... If it is biblically informed and validated, it means our committed participation 
as God's people, at God's invitation and command, in God's own mission, within the history of God's world for the redemption of God's creation. So again, emphasizing that this is God's mission primarily in which we are participating. Uh, And so we should do so, we should participate in a way that fits with who He is and what He's come to do. Uh, One last word about last week. Um, Again, most of the time when we think about mission, we probably think of it in a redemptive context, which is to say uh, we're thinking of Jesus coming to seek and save the lost and to fix what is broken and to deal with sin. That's right, and that, that, that is most of the Bible from Genesis 3 onward. But what we looked at last week is that God's mission actually begins before sin enters the world. He had purposes for the world and in the world before sin. And so last week, you remember, we looked at the Trinity, God Himself as relationship, and that even within Himself, there has been for all eternity this mutual self-giving love that characterizes the intimacy within the Godhead. And so I said that we could actually say that God is missional within Himself, because there's this self-giving, this relationship, this, uh, this dance among the persons of the Godhead that, that, that is characterized by the self-giving love that is inherent in who God is. So, so we see it in who God is, but then, uh, and obviously that uh, is pre-fall and pre-sin entering the world. But we also saw it in creation, and that the way in which God created the world and the purposes that He had uh, was to flood the world with His love and His glory... And that all parts of creation were to show forth who He is. They were going to show forth His glory and His goodness. The the most fundamental way or the the most uh, pointed way in which that would happen is going to be through us, who are the only part of the creation that actually bear His image in this special way. And so that's some of what we looked at last week. Um, This week, what we'll do is talk some about how that mission was thwarted, how it was messed up. And how uh, sin entered the world and um, changed how this mission is going to be accomplished. Um, and so, uh, so we'll look some at the pronouncement of the curse this morning um, and see how actually that was aimed directly at our mission. And this is kind of where we feel it most. So he- here's, what, here's what we're going to see, is that God's mission even continues through the fall. Um, and that the mission of God continues both for God in the ordinary fallen world... But it also continues for us. Our mission continues in and through the ordinary, uh, the, these ordinary ways in a world that has fallen and yet is in the process of being redeemed. Uh, so that, that's where we're going this week. Um, go ahead and open up to Genesis 3. You can do that in the Pew Bible. This is the text that we will camp out in this morning. We will end up reading the whole of the chapter. Uh, Let me start with this question just to get us going a bit. Uh, You could name any recent tragedy. Many of you will have seen uh, the execution earlier this week of 21 Coptic Christians by ISIS. It was obviously all over the news. Horrible, horrible thing. Um, You can pick a number of things. You can think of uh, in the last year, the last six to eight months, all the racial tensions and violence that have occurred throughout the country. Uh, all that's going on there. And, and so here's a question I want us to discuss for a second. If you were to just ask people, and maybe people outside the church, maybe people in the church, either way, um, why these things happen, what sort of responses might you get? How might they explain 
uh, all this, um, I was going to say sin and evil, that's obviously coming from a biblical perspective, but how might they explain that? Yeah, Cody. God's absent, yeah. Yeah, so maybe they have some view that there is a God, but he has, he's kind of the God of the deists who's uh, hands off in terms of what's actually happening in the world. Because, after, you know, if he was involved, he wouldn't let these things happen. Yeah. What else? Punishment or judgment in some way. So maybe God is involved in the world uh, and there's judgment being meted out by this. Yeah. Yeah, many would just blame religion and say that actually religion is the problem. That's why these things are happening. Um, if we could get rid of kind of these myths and fairy tales, then that wouldn't happen anymore. Kitty Jefferson? Yeah, okay. Yeah, so, so some would say, yeah, um, that, uh, that, that there are political problems, lack of jobs, um, a, a political... Uh, or a, a particular governmental form, even, that would uh, lend itself to violence, corruption, and that sort of thing. Yeah. What else? How about, and maybe this kind of goes with what Brian had mentioned, um, general ignorance. Uh, that the problem is that um, people wouldn't think this way or do these things if they were just better educated. Uh, and that the problem is a lack of knowledge. I think that's a pretty common one. Yes, Lily. Sorry, say again. They make God out to be the offender. Yeah, so maybe it is some form of religion or a particular, um, yeah, that, that God is even on the hook and responsible for this in some way. Yeah, um, and, and of course, you know where we're going with this. And, and the way the Bible explains this, of course, is that it all goes back to Genesis 3. And there are elements of truth in some of those responses for sure. But the ultimate reason why these things occur, uh, the ultimate explanation, is that sin entered into God's creation and, and has wreaked havoc throughout. Uh, so uh, we're going to look at that this morning. Uh, Genesis 3, I'm going to just read first verses 1 through 7, and then we'll make our way through the rest of it in a bit here. Uh, so Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree of the, that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil." So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So what I want to look at here is, is first look some at just this temptation and how this happened and then see uh, specifically how it applies to, uh, the, to this original mission given to the man and the woman and how it's been affected by it. So first, this temptation to be king. You've got the, the serpent coming into, uh, into the garden. Of course, the Bible never says where the serpent comes from, but later on, particularly in two spots in Revelation, the serpent is said to be Satan. So Satan is, is this serpent who has taken on this form in order to tempt and deceive the man and the woman. Um, the important point for us, though, 
is that we've got to remember and see that there was a time when sin was not. Okay? So that, that, that sin is an intruder into God's good creation. So we want to affirm the goodness and sinlessness of God's original creation and that there was in space and time a particular instance in when that, when that changed, when uh, Adam and Eve ate of this fruit. So um, first, just looking here at the elements of attack. How does the serpent approach the woman and the man and attack them? What do we see? Lies, yes. So it starts with this initial question, did God actually say this? Uh, likely trying to introduce a little bit of doubt. Okay, maybe, maybe God did. Let me think. Did God say this? Oh, no. Um, so he's, he's, he's deceptive already from the start. And then, as Jacob said, in this, the second part of it, if you look at verse 4, there's just a straight-up lie. Um, he, he's subtle at first, and then he just says, you will not surely die, and directly contradicts God's word. And says, no, actually, God is a liar. He's lying to you. Yeah, so that, that, that's part of the attack. What else do we see? Yes, yeah, Sherry asks, is it significant that Eve's, Eve is alone? Yeah, yeah, you can look at this, uh, at what happened and think, uh, and Paul will say later on, of course, that sin comes through Eve taking this. But he also says in Romans 5, uh, he puts the blame on Adam. And so there, and Adam is, serves as what we would say is the covenant head. He's the covenant, the representative of all humanity in this. And he is notably absent from this. Um, and so some have kind of illustrated this where it's as though Adam kind of takes a step back rather than being the one who is to be responsible for what's occurring here and lets this whole thing happen and then eats of the tree. So, yeah, he, he's absent and is not fulfilling the role that he had been given in Genesis 2. Yeah, what else? Yeah, good. Sorry? Yes. Yes, he tempts them. So the end is this, uh, the, this final bit of the attack in verse 5. He says, uh, here, here's actually what's going on. Let me tell you why God is not wanting you to eat of this tree. He's lying to you. First of all, you're not going to die. Let me tell you why that's the case. He knows that when you eat of it, you're going to be like him. That's what God doesn't want. Yeah, any other? I thought I saw another hand. Okay, so those are the elements of attack that take place. Now, um, th- these, this is sort of now looking at it from a different perspective. How, does this, uh, how are Adam and Eve standing in the midst of this? What are the elements of temptation? So how, do they, how, do they res- how does it come to them as a temptation? Um, and so you, you see multiple elements here. I've got four that we, could, we can uh, discuss real quickly here. Um, the first, as I say, is just to doubt the Word of God. Um, you see this in verse 1 and verse 4, where, where, Ad, or where the serpent's trying to introduce a little bit of uh, some doubt in there. Did God actually say this? And then in verse 4, where it's a flat-out contradiction of what God said. So he's, he's trying to press the issue to the man and the woman and say, um, you might not be so sure about this. You could be wrong, which is say God might be wrong. And then in verse 4, doubting the judgment of God. You're not surely going to die. You don't really need to think about judgment in that way. Don't think about those consequences. Uh, another aspect of temptation, this is one we'll talk about for a moment, and Darwin mentioned this this morning, doubting the goodness of God, which is really verse 5. 
God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so what's the serpent saying here to the man and the woman? What's the temptation there? Yeah, you become God. You can be God. And actually, this is all you have to do is eat of this tree and God's holding out on you. That's the reason that He doesn't want you to eat of this tree. There's something good, there's something that He has that's even better than what He's given to you. And that's the reason He's telling you not to eat of this tree. It's not because He loves you that He's telling you not to. It's because He he doesn't love you um, that He's telling you to not eat of this tree. If you had what He's hiding and keeping from you, then you'd be really happy. And so here's how Sally Lloyd-Jones says this so well. As soon as the snake saw his chance, he slithered silently up to Eve. Does God really love you? The serpent whispered. If he does, why won't he let you eat the nice, juicy, delicious fruit? Poor you. Perhaps God doesn't want you to be happy. The snake's words hissed into her ears and sunk down deep into her heart like poison. Does God love me? Eve wondered. Suddenly she didn't know anymore. Just trust me, the serpent whispered. You don't need God. One small taste, that's all. And you'll be happier than you could ever dream. So this one, I think, has so much application, which we won't get into too much now, to how we need to think about sin as well. Uh, Every single time we are tempted to sin, what is in back of that is a doubting of God's goodness. He may tell me I shouldn't lie to this person. He may tell me that I shouldn't desire to be successful in all these unhealthy ways. But really, I know that he's holding out on me. That actually would be really good. And in that moment, we're doubting his goodness. So that's at back of all all of our sin. Um, Final aspect here of temptation is, uh, and this is really what was said, to put oneself in the place of God. So the, the opportunity, the temptation is to say, Um, You know, God, you told me not to do this, but now I'm going to be the judge of whether it's a good thing to eat of this tree or not. Thanks for your input on it. I'll be the ultimate judge. I'm going to be God and decide whether I eat of this tree or not. And that's ultimately what happens. Eve becomes, in a sense, the the ultimate interpreter of her own reality and says, this is what I'm going to do. I know better than God. Uh, And so she sees it's uh, desirable, eats it, and so does Adam, and everything's messed up. So James 1, each person's tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it was conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's, of course, what happens. And here's uh, Mike Williams. Sin is a rebellion against God and His good gifts. A rebellion from the loving Word of God. A rebellion that brings discord and fracture into God's creation. Sin is never normal or natural. It never fits. Uh, We could say that about death, too, that uh, death as a consequence of sin is never normal, never natural, it never fits. Okay, so that's what happens here. That's the temptation to be king. And uh, and so now we see how this is going to hit right in uh, the the places where God's mission was was to go forth through this man and this woman. Look at verse 8, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. 
He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit. She gave me of the fruit of the tree and I ate. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, this is where he pronounces the curse. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to, the, and to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for, for, out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay, so consequences of this rebellion and seeing how this mission is thwarted, and that's what I want us to notice in each of these categories. And you'll see that, that uh, I've got it laid out here. This is pretty common, laying it out in terms of relationships. There's the relationship between the man and the woman and God. There's the relationship between the man and the woman with each other, and then the relationship between the man and the woman and the creation, the created order Around them, and so all all three of those relationships have aspects of God's mission uh, as a part of them. Right? If you remember being made in the image of God and given the task that was given to the man and the woman in Genesis one twenty six to twenty eight, and then in uh, Genesis two fifteen, uh, has thing has everything to do with their relationship to God, their relationship to each other, and the relationship to the world around them. So watch and see here how that mission was messed up because of sin. So first, relationship to God. Um, rather than being in this, this relationship where they are to worship God, to find, find their ultimate satisfaction and joy in who God is to them, and then reflecting that goodness and that love to the world around them, instead of that, you see in verse 8, they hide from God. Uh, and then in verse 10, you see that they're actually afraid of God. They, they, they have this sense of shame that washes over them. They understand their guilt and they understand their shame. And their immediate response is to try and get away from him and to cover themselves. Of course, we know that it's insufficient, doesn't work. But what happens is that their worship is, is twisted, it's perverted, and it's misdirected. And so um, you get these words from Paul in Romans 1 that describes then what idolatry is. So this mission originally is worship God, find your ultimate satisfaction in him. What happens in the fall? Worship begins, uh, is directed elsewhere. Rather than being directed at the Creator, the one to whom it's rightly to be directed, it's actually now set upon other parts of, of God's creation. Just look at um, 
uh, verse 25 there of Romans 1. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who's blessed forever. Amen. So our worship is messed up. Secondly, relationship to each other. What happens in verse 7, verse 7, right after the first thing that the text says after they have eaten of this tree? What do they do immediately? Yeah, they hide. And specifically, what, what form does it take in verse 7? Yes, they need clothing. They realize they're naked, their eyes are opened. And that's uh, literal, but also metaphorical of this deep, uh, open, honest relationship that they had, the intimacy that they had with one another is now changed. And so instead of having this sense of openness with his spouse, uh, they both think, uh, we got to cover ourselves. There's something wrong with me. I'm not sure what it is, but I know I need to cover myself. And so this, this uh, shame enters into it from the start. Verses 12 and 13, uh, blame shifting begins. Um, what is it that you've done? It's the woman that you gave me, actually. That's the problem. Turn to the woman. What did you do? Uh, this the serpent, actually, is the one you should probably be talking to. So blame shifting comes into this. Uh, and, then verse, and then verse 16, in the curse pronounced... Upon the woman, there's pain in childbearing and in child-rearing. There's uh, also this marital strife, and this is where, uh, if you look at verse 16 again, it says, your desire shall be for your husband. And if you look at the footnote there, that's an important footnote. It's footnoted as against. So, um, your desire should be actually not for your husband, against your husband. But the sense is that um, the desire is going to be to rule over her husband in this way or against her husband and be at odds with one another in this sort of um, strife and conflict. I've told this story before, just real quick, this is kind of funny. Um, the first year that Jeanette and I were married, we received this um, 365 uh, little calendar pages to tear off, like first year of marriage. And so there were kind of sweet verses from little love poems and verses of scripture here and there. And so one of them uh, was this verse in total isolation. said, your desire shall be for your husband. As if it was this nice, sweet thing. And uh, I use that example regularly as an example of how, uh, how important context is for understanding the Bible. Like, that, yeah, this actually might have some application for, for us, but not in the sense that you think it does. Uh, so... So this strife and this conflict enters in between the man and the woman because of their sin. And here's what's important about that mission, that one of the primary ways in which this mission of God was going to, to bear itself out, the way that God's, uh, God was going to be imaged was going to be through this being fruitful and multiplying. So this very real way in which the man and the woman would continue to have children and show forth uh, what God was like and the way that they would raise their children. And so there's pain in childbearing and in childrearing. And then also they were given this joint task together to work the land and to, to have, this, uh, have this responsibility to press out and extend the borders of this garden. And now they're in conflict with one another. Now they're at odds with one another. So this Working alongside one another uh, is no longer going to be easy like it had been before. So that's relationship with each other. Um, and then relationship to the world around us. So, um, 
And this is where we've, we talked about this in the sermon series on work. Uh, verse 17, and the curse pronounced uh, on the man says that the ground itself is cursed and that work now becomes toilsome and painful. And, and this is there, there to exercise dominion over all creation. But now what happens, and this is the way Sinclair Ferguson puts it, instead of lording over the land, the land lords over Adam. And so in the end, what you get in verse 20 or in verse 19 is, that, yeah, you were made out of dust, but in the end, the dust wins because you're going back to it. Um, you might exercise a little bit of dominion here for a while. Dust is going to win out in the end. And so that mission is thwarted. The mission of working and keeping the garden has become toilsome because the ground is cursed. So these are ways in which the curse uh, comes to us and the consequences of it. Um, Let's do this. Uh, I'm going to say a few things about how we see God's ongoing mission in these same verses, though. Okay? And then we'll have a little bit of discussion. So two things I want, I want us to notice. Um, one is that God is going to put into play from the very start His ultimate rescue mission that we will see traced throughout the rest of the Bible. And remember, we participate in His mission. So that's the primary thing that we need to see is that they're in the midst, and we'll see it, it's in the midst of the curse on the serpent and then also in his making garments of skin for the man and the woman, we already see God, the beginnings of God's ultimate plan of rescue and mission. So there's that sort of mission that's kind of working itself out through the Bible. Uh, the second thing, though, that I want us to see, and this is kind of uh, secondary to that, is that the call to bear God's image in the world, the call that came to Adam and Eve, still now also comes to us. And we could look at uh, after the flood in uh, Genesis 9 when God is cutting this covenant or uh, restating the terms of the covenant with Noah. And he, he almost verbatim restates Genesis 1, 26 through 28. All that to say is that the call to be fruitful, multiply, have dominion, work the ground, and show forth God's image in the world continues for us as well after the fall. And so we'll look at elements of that too. So this, like this work of marriage, family life, work, childbearing, um, bringing about this culture um, from the raw material of creation. So first, uh, blessing in the midst of cursing. Um, verses 14 and 15 uh, and the, with the serpent. So the curse, of course, is that the serpent's going to go on its belly and eat dust. Um, but here's the blessing in the ongoing mission that we see. He says that the seed of the woman will triumph over the seed of the serpent. And the the fancy theological term for this is the proto-evangelium. What that means is that that just means the gospel announced in advance. And that's actually what's happening. This isn't the verse, this isn't like in the Bible promise book. Um, There's probably not a precious moments uh, figurine of like the seed of the woman crushing the head of the seed of the serpent or something like that. But this is the first gospel promise in the Bible. And so here's, here's how it comes to us. Uh, some have said this is like a, a kind of a backhanded gospel in some ways. So w- what happens is that um, God, and you see this a few things to notice on your sheet, God initiates the work of rescue by introducing the conflict. So here's what's important about that. Um, there's the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. 
If God doesn't come in and say, I'm actually going to introduce conflict between the two of your seeds, what would happen otherwise? What would happen to the seed of the woman if God didn't introduce this conflict? Yeah, it would be that much more susceptible and would probably just continually side with the serpent, right? It would be kind of a repeat of Genesis 3, 6 over and over again. And so, unless God, in His sovereignty, introduces conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, over and over again, we're going to side with the serpent. Side with the serpent. Even that gets at some of what Darwin was talking about this morning, and that you give yourself to some kind of authority. You make yourself subject to something, and that's about the only choice you get. Who are you going to serve? Um, and so, that, that's, that's what would happen otherwise. So, so, God reverses what would be natural in this relationship and says, no, you're actually going to be in disagreement with one another, and that's my grace and kindness to you. Secondly, God's mission of rescue is going to continue. And, um, and, so, and, and that's going to be in the form of this seed of the serpent. One day, down through this long genealogy of the seed of the woman, there will be this one who's going to accomplish God's rescue mission. And it's pretty... Not pretty, it's extraordinarily shadowy and uncertain in this verse. You hear that and you go like, okay, something's going to happen at some point. We have no idea what. Um, Of course, uh, then three, the seed of the woman's going to be hurt or bitten or bruised. And so there's a cost that's going to come at the, at the, the seed of this woman. And so what we see ultimately is that you can trace these themes through the Bible and see that in the end... Jesus, of course, is the seed of the woman, and he crushes the head of the serpent on the cross. That's what's happening. In the end, he's going to defeat uh, the seed of the serpent. This is the the first announcement of the gospel. Hebrews 2 gets at that. uh, 1 John gets at that. Darwin quoted 1 John 3 this morning, actually. So that's coming at the serpent. That's huge. This is the beginning of God's ultimate rescue mission that comes even in the midst of his cursing. Um, secondly, for the woman, um, the curse, of course, is this uh, pain in childbirth and child rearing, and, then, and that there will now be conflict in this marital relationship. Um, and then the blessing, though, there's actually there's ongoing mission here, and it's, you see it in a couple ways. One, humanity will continue. God had said, you're going to die if you eat of this, and that's true, but it's not immediate death and immediate wiping out of all humanity, which God could have rightly and justly done. So humanity is going to continue. You will bear children, but now it's going to be painful in a way that it wasn't before. Uh, and so that, that's how you see this. There's blessing in the midst of this, and there's ongoing mission. Uh, then, and of course, while these are pronounced on particular individuals, this has implications for all of us, obviously. The man then, verse 17 through 19, ground is cursed. Um, food's only going to come forth now with uh, painful labor, but the blessing or the ongoing mission is that God is still providing food. The bread is still bread. And so the mission to work, and and this has everything to do with our vocations then and the way in which we would show forth God's image in and through our studies, in and through what we do in the home, in and through what we do at our workplaces. All of these are still ways in which we can show forth who God is. It's just now that we do that, we, we feel the effects of sin and the curse. And so that's still going forward, though. This mission of imaging God in the world is, is still occurring. Um, finally, uh, this is another way in which we see God's particular grace. Clothed and expelled from the garden. So first, God makes garments of skin, verse 21. So they've taken these fig leaves, tried to cover themselves. 
um, it's insufficient. Uh, it's not, not enough. Um, and this is a picture, of course, of course, of our attempts to deal with our own sin and our shame. It doesn't work. God has to do something about it, and so He does. He has to, there has to be some sort of animal death in order for there to be some kind of garment to be, cover themselves. So at the very least, there's a sacrifice that's implied here that takes place. And then uh, the last part of that is that God expels them from the garden. That's not because He's harsh or mean. It's because uh, He's gracious and He's loving. Because verse 22 gives us a little hint of what likely would have happened if they had not eaten of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and had instead eaten from the tree of life. And what would have happened is that they would have been, um, the best way to say it is they would have been confirmed in that state. There would have been no going back at that point. And so because they had sinned, had they then eaten of this tree of life, then God says in, in verse 22 that they would live forever in this state which is not what, they, what we wanted. That, there's a little bit of conjecture there. It's not quite certain what it would have been. But the point is that they're sent out to work the land outside the garden, and the mission continues. So, five minutes. Um, some application questions for us here. Um, let me ask this. What, what sort of hope does it bring us Uh, knowing that sin can't and won't ultimately thwart God's mission. Maybe that's just a lot of hope. Maybe that's the only answer. What kind of discussion question is that? Um, Maybe I should just say that one like I just did. Um, uh, So maybe just to see that there is tremendous hope in the midst of this, in that Adam and Eve have, have... They've committed this cosmic treason. There's nothing worse that they could have done than what they did. It is ultimate rebellion against the one who loved them and created them, who had done nothing but be good to them the entirety of their lives and their existence. And they still do exactly what he says not to do. And he still shows grace and accomplishes his purposes in them. Um, And obviously for us, that's not a license to sin. It's not a license to do whatever we want. But... It should come as a huge encouragement to us that when we sin, because we will and do, God can still work in and through that and give hope. Um, So maybe I'll just ask these rhetorical questions and then answer them myself. Uh, Now, here's the next one. This actually we should should answer. Uh, Okay, how might this explanation, and I asked a question similar to this last week, how might this explanation on why, why life is often difficult and painful... How might that explanation that Genesis 3 gives resonate with your friends and neighbors who are not Christians? Yeah, how might this explanation that Genesis 3 gives as to why childbearing, marriage, work, relationships are hard, how might this explanation resonate with your friends and neighbors who are not Christians? Yeah, so they see it's true that, that they, it's been this way for thousands of years. It's historically verifiable in that way. This is this has continued to happen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, as Anne-Marie said, it gives an explanation um, maybe of the, even if they might not call it um, sin, they, there is an inherent, rec- an inherent recognition within that something's not right with me. Certainly, I'm not perfect. I don't live up to my own expectations. And this gives some kind of explanation for it as to why that's the case and then the ultimate solution. Yeah, Cody. Yeah, so, so getting at that initial, um, where if we're talking about ways that people would explain things, they might say, well, it's totally God's fault. And so you're saying what this explanation does is say, no, actually, it's not God's fault. Um, we see that this is the product of our own rebellion. Yeah, okay, great, great. Yeah, Sherry. Yes, yeah. So tapping into that sense that all people have to varying degrees because they're made in the image of God and they live in God's world, that they recognize there's something that's not the way it's supposed to be. And this this taps into and explains it. Yeah, Carrie and then Martin. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so Carrie said, yeah, that it's, it's, uh, it, there's ultimate redemption in this. And I love, she said, too, that there's, um, I think, being even able to explain why the, their work sometimes feels meaningless or why this feels so difficult and to say, no, you're not the one who's supposed to, like, make this into some sort of meaningful thing. This is because of sin in the world. Yeah, real quick, Martin. Okay, yesterday I was talking about Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thanks for that. That's great. Um, and, and you might actually, th- this is just to summarize this. You, you guys can come on up if you need to, Jacob, if you need them to come up. Okay. Um, the, um, the, this is, I think this is a powerful way as a touch point to our friends and, who are not Christians. Um, because I think a lot of people also have this idea of Christianity that it's about morally upright people doing more and more morally upright things and that that's the whole of it. But to say, no, actually... This is as about this is more honest than anything else as to how bad things can really be and how bad we can be and are in ways and to be honest about that is ridiculously disarming um, with people. So uh, let me pray real quick. Father, thank you for your grace uh, that comes to us in our sin and that your ultimate purposes can't be thwarted.